This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 2017, a man by the name of John Edmonds went public with an issue that he had been having on his ranch for the last 20 years. The way in which he did this was by putting the property in Buckeye, Arizona up for sale for $5 million and a brief description of how he and his wife had been terrorized by alien beings during their entire time at the ranch. Bit by bit, as the national news picked up on this incredible story, more and more details began to surface, and the events in which Edmonds highlighted on Facebook went international, which attracted the attention of many big-name paranormal entities, such as the Travel Channel's hit show, Ghost Adventures. Some of the claims were incredible. Events such as Edmonds himself being targeted by violent attacks by alien beings, to defending himself with a sword and his wife being levitated out of their bedroom as a craft in the sky attempted to abduct her in the parking lot of their ranch. In March of 2017, Edmonds posted a picture of a sword and a puddle of dried blood with a caption that detailed how the sword was used to defend himself against a recent attack. Photos of his own personal injuries from these conflicts were shared with the world, and the world watched. Today, we head on down to Arizona, in an area about an hour west of Phoenix, where John Edmonds is attempting to sell his home due to a continuous onslaught of attacks by alien beings. Today we investigate Stardust Ranch. Welcome back to Infinite Rabbit Hole. Welcome back to the Infinite Rabbit Hole, everybody. I'm your host, Jeremy, and today we are going to dive into one of the most amazing stories that you will ever hear. Trust me, this one, oh man, this is like, let's say, Skinwalker Ranch meets Mel's Hole. Let's go with that. I think that's a pretty good description. You guys will see what I'm talking about as we go. And there are many people out there just don't believe this story is true whatsoever. Uh, and that's kind of the Mel's whole side of this here. 
Although there are plenty that do believe every single word that has been told. Well, by the end of this presentation, I hope that you guys will have your own beliefs in John Edmund's story. It's a crazy one, travelers. Trust me, this one's good. If you like Skinwalker Ranch, you're going to love this. And without further ado, Stardust Ranch. I'll see you on the other side. In 1996, John and Joyce Edmonds purchased the now famous ranch nestled in the rural area known as Rainbow Valley in Buckeye, Arizona, in an attempt to give John his childhood dream of living a more secluded lifestyle. At the time, it wasn't known as Stardust Ranch. The moniker would come later as the stories of the events taking place on the property began to be followed by the public. When they purchased the property, the main house was just shy of 20 years old and held about 3,500 square feet of floor space, five bedrooms, three baths, and a huge living room and kitchen. And John was initially very happy with his investment. He was enthralled by the quality and quantity of land that they were able to afford at the price that they were given. All 10 acres of the property came fenced in and was ready for every plan that John had in mind. Joyce, on the other hand, was not a fan. From the very first visit to the then vacation home of the previous owner, Joyce had a really bad feeling about the entire place. She also worked at the FBI building in Phoenix and was not excited about an hour ride to work every day, and quitting her job was just not an option to her. It was much easier for John as he was to leave his job as a psychiatric counselor and began a few different business ventures with the property as the source of his income. This began to get weird from the very first day they stepped foot on the property. John and Joyce opened the front door to the house and were surprised that the previous owner's very expensive furniture was still in the house. This was a problem as the Edmonds had all of their own furniture and this left them with nowhere to put it. So John called up the real estate agent and told him of the issue, and in response, the agent told the couple that he would begin attacking the problem and that John and Joyce should go out and spend some time in Buckeye and get to know the area while they worked out the solution. The couple returned in the early evening to the house completely empty, and they were incredibly surprised at the amount of work that would have been done in order to complete such a task in such little time. Before bed, John wanted to see his property at night, so he went to the back door and flipped on the light that looked over the in-ground pool. To his surprise, he saw all of the furniture that was in the house earlier that day stuffed into the pool. Everything was there, including the fridge, TVs, couches. Rightfully frustrated, John called his realtor once more, but was shocked to hear that his agent wasn't able to get a hold of anyone for the matter. The personal numbers that were listed on all the paperwork as contact information for the previous owners were no longer in service. Therefore, he was unable to set up the removal of the furniture. The real estate agent then basically told John that it was his problem now. A few months went by without any incidents until one day when John was home by himself while Joyce was at work when he noticed a man walking down the long driveway to his ranch. John walked out to meet the man halfway but not before grabbing and concealing his 357 Magnum, just in case. When the men approached each other, John was surprised to see that the man was holding a machete in his hand, but still asked if he could be any help to the man who looked to be of the hippie type. The man pointed to what John believed was a shed on the property and said, I live here. A little surprised at the entire situation, John claimed that this was now his property, and if the man had worked out something with the previous owners with labor or whatever, he would no longer be needed. 
Then the man said something that creeped John out, but would later be realized as a sign of the mistake he had just made. The man said, and quote, I kill the monsters. A Reputation At some point earlier in the couple's time at the ranch, John decided that he wanted to get a landline installed. There were, however, at least 30 different phone jacks in the house, and he wanted to get one working in the kitchen in case of an emergency since they were in a rural area and their cell phones didn't get the best reception sometimes. After two missed appointments on the side of the phone company to show up on two separate days, John finally talked to a manager who described how the contracted company that they used did not have anybody willing to go out onto the property due to its reputation. John, of course, asked for clarification, as he was unaware of any reputation that the ranch may have, but the woman refused to talk about it other than telling him that it was the reason why nobody had shown up on the appointed days. She did, however, ensure that someone would be out the next day, and sure enough, a phone company van did show. The man who exited the van and approached the house was visually uneasy, but John let him in and began making small talk. Eventually, the conversation moved to the property itself, and John explained that it was his understanding that the house had a reputation, and it seemed that nobody wanted to tell him exactly what that reputation was. The installer, however, filled him in. I won't dive deep into all of the, the details, as I don't want to report on Edmund's story outside of the strange events on the property, but it seems that the ranch did not have a very paranormal or supernatural past. It did, however, have a lot of blood that was spilled. Everything from a shootout between the FBI, ATF, local law enforcement, and the militia-slash-commune known as the Sons of Gestapo, to a suicide of an 18-year-old just prior to his high school graduation. A few other unlawful things took place at the ranch in its early days, but I will leave that to John Edmonds himself in his book Stardust Ranch, The Incredible True Story, where he outlines as much history of the house as he can very well. But what would soon happen is the creation of an entirely new reputation, one that began one night when John was out exploring the land in his jeep, when he witnessed an abundance of lights that seemed to move under their own power and direction. Most of these lights were orange, but as he and his wife would later see, orange was far from the only color that would be represented. The official explanation for these lights that the locals are familiar with is that they are flares from the nearby Luke Air Force range. Those that have seen them know that this is not the case, as the lights move in incredible ways. John even explains in his book that there were times that he saw the lights during the daytime hours being chased by fighter jets. As you will soon see, these lights are just the beginning of the strangeness that will be experienced by both John and Joyce Edmonds during their time on Stardust Ranch. The Progression The strangeness began with the feeling of confusion and anger that seemed to accompany a feeling in the atmosphere that reminded John of the pressure in the air before a thunderstorm. He would get frustrated due to the power at the ranch acting weird. He would go to use a tool that would not turn on, but all other items using electricity would, and they would work just fine. Then shortly after, without any repair done by himself, the tool would start working again. This, of course, is one example of the phenomenon with the electricity on the property, and it was seen in many forms throughout not only the house, but the property with items or appliances that were either plugged in directly into the house's power or things that used batteries. The opposite happened at seemingly random times throughout the day and night, where the TV and radio would turn itself on and instantly increase the volume to the highest setting. 
He would lose things and not just lose them like he had misplaced them. For example, he would set his keys down in a specific place, go do a few things around the house, and return only to find that the keys were no longer where he had left them. John would then search around the house in various places only to find them in the exact place that he had originally left them. John began having issues with his own anger and frustration. As a psychiatric counselor that worked with the entire range of patients in his career, he knew a few different mind exercises that he relied on to get him through this part of his life. He even spent a stint believing that this was the first stages of Alzheimer's. When he began to notice that he wasn't the only one affected, when the pressure would come, his dogs would begin to fight, and the horses would begin acting scared. Eventually, the pressure seemed to react to John himself. He began to notice that when he was frustrated, the pressure would return and the worse he got, the worse it got. A few times it got so bad that things fell off shelves and shook throughout the house. The more he noticed connections with himself to the pressure, the more he began to believe that it wasn't a naturally occurring phenomenon and the more he started to believe that it was a presence that was here on the ranch. The truly benevolent events began one morning after Joyce had left for work. John was following his typical morning routine after she left and went to the kennels to feed and exercise the eight Rottweilers that they had when he noticed that one of the gates was open. He found one of the dogs completely flattened to the size of one or two inches. There were no organs, no blood laying around, just his favorite dog laying dead just a little way away from the crate. This marked the event that would really open him up to something happening on the property that he was duly unfamiliar with. This was not him having memory issues. This was not an electrical problem in the house. This was something or someone else. Up to this point, he had kept the events that John was witnessing around the property away from Joyce. This would have to be explained. And he came forward about everything that he had been experiencing. And he was pissed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Fractured Love The death of the dog was far from the last death of an animal on the property. Soon after, horses would begin to fall victim to this unknown force as well, where the dog had been found flattened. The horses would be found obliterated. In John's mind, this wasn't something that a man or animal could do. Bits and pieces of them were found in the smallest of chunks as if they had attempted to evaporate. There was no regular time frame from the occurrences. Rather, it would typically happen after enough time had passed in order for John and Joyce to forget about the threat. One strange detail that John mentions in his book is that the mutilations were never accompanied by any ruckus made by the animals. The horses didn't make noise in their stables and the dogs never alerted to any threat. At this point in their time on the ranch, Joyce was still extremely skeptical of everything. She originally did not want to move to the ranch and now that things were going on on the property, she began to get very irritable. John saw this as her going through what he had initially gone through with the mood swings. In his mind, she was not far from catching up with him about what he began to believe was a paranormal situation. He stubbornly argued with her about selling the property. He had spent his entire life savings on this ranch and didn't want to be scared away from his dream that he had worked so hard to fulfill. 
Soon after, the couple began to fall victim to yet another strange set of events. It would seem that in the night while they slept, they would get random burn marks and pits all over their bodies. John explains in his book that the particular issue began finding its way into the daytime as well. He was sitting, watching TV one day, when he felt a sharp burn on the backside of his calf as he were being branded. This marked one of the first actions of physical contact not just during the day, but also during a period in which either of them was awake. All of the previous events seemed to be leading up to a particular point, and John waited patiently to witness what was in store for him next, and he didn't have to wait long. One night, Joyce and John decided to head to Phoenix to have dinner at a Tex-Mex restaurant. They each took their time getting ready, and John was first to finish, so he sat down on the couch and watched some TV as he waited for Joyce to finish getting ready. After some time, Joyce walked into the room and announced that she was ready to go. And John stood up, walked to the back of the house to check on the animals before they left. Joyce walked out the front door and waited for John in their truck. Everything looked fine, so John jumped in the truck and began the 45-minute drive to Phoenix to have dinner with his wife. During the drive, they discussed many things, including the few details that Joyce could share about FBI happenings in the Phoenix area and John's idea for a watering trough system for the horses. When they arrived at the restaurant, John dropped Joyce off at the front door so that he could park the truck. He walked in and was guided to the table in which Joyce was sitting at. Before long, a waitress had come by to take their drink orders, where John had ordered two margaritas and a basket of chips and salsa for them both to share. Joyce excused herself to the ladies' room, and John was sitting at the table with nothing really to do. He reached for his cell phone clip and placed his phone on the table next to him. To his surprise, the phone was off. He wasn't too concerned, as at this time of night, there should be nobody that really needed to get in touch with him. But he turned on the phone anyway. As soon as the phone powered on, a plethora of notification tones alarmed, and John was shocked to see missed calls and voicemails coming from their house phone. The first voicemail was Joyce, and she was very angry and asked where he was and how he could have left her at the house during their date night. He quickly called back, very confused, and after a couple of rings, Joyce answered. She began crying and yelling at him through the phone as she was rightfully pissed that she had been left at the house especially when he was able to tell her where she was. He told her that he would be on his way back immediately and would be home in 45 minutes. As he hung up, he watched as Joyce walked out of the area of the restaurant that housed the bathrooms and was shocked to see that who or whatever it was looked exactly like Joyce. This was getting really weird to him as he and whoever sat across from him right now had a full-blown conversation about only things that Joyce would know especially the details of the issue that Phoenix was having at the time with human trafficking. He felt pretty comfortable that the voice on the phone was another of the mysterious presence's doings. But as he looked up at the Joyce sitting across from him, she moved her face to make eye contact with him, and he watched as her eyes shifted from her normal eye color and shape to ones of pure black. He then stood up, walked out without paying a dime for anything, and began his long trek back home to his angry wife. This event would be the beginning of a string of similar events witnessed by both Joyce and John that they call the doppelgangers. John had witnessed the fake Joyce multiple times, each time falling for its tricks, and Joyce would eventually report falling victim to a fake John on more than one occasion as well. Lifting the Mask The first physical face-to-face -face encounter with whatever was behind all of the doings on the ranch, or at least the branding burns at night, came one night when the couple were in bed. 
Joyce was fast asleep, and John had been drifting in and out of dreamland for what he believed to be 90 minutes or so. As he lay there, he felt a strange sensation on his forearm as if it were being stroked by a cold finger. This led to whatever it was grabbing hold of John's wrist. John jumped into action and reached for a baseball bat that he had kept in the bedroom and swung without fully seeing what it was he was swinging at. As he made his swing, a sound like air being let out of a tire erupted, and when John came to and was able to focus for a second, he finally saw them. Three gray aliens stood on his side of the bed. They all stood roughly four feet tall and were very slim with no signs of genitals. The only thick parts about them were their chest and their bulbous head, which housed two large black eyes each. Black eyes that he found familiar, which he would almost instantly contribute as what he had witnessed that night in the Tex-Mex restaurant in Phoenix. And just as John had noticed where and what they were, they phased out of existence as if they had just vanished into thin air right before his eyes. Although this was a very scary event, it at least left John with a starting point, a subject to research, something to blame, a face behind the mask. After this encounter with the Greys, both Joyce and John would encounter them regularly, but at no particular frequency. They would be witnessed inside and out of the house and in various parts of the property, and John began taking shots at the aliens to try to get them to leave, but when a bullet hit one of them, the aliens would make a hissing sound like they did the first night and disappear. Never did they hunch over or fall to their death. This led John to believe that guns were not the answer for how to fend off these visitors. So they locked away most of their guns as they were dangerous to shoot at things that were not affected by bullets. John would eventually talk with a Mormon tax specialist who out of seemingly random conversation would end up telling him about the happenings at the ranch. The Mormon bishop was familiar with the ranch's history and recommended that John and Joyce have an exorcism done. Although they were very reluctant, the couple decided that there was no harm in it and gave permission to the bishop to perform an exorcism on the property. When the day came to perform the task, the bishop arrived in a van with two other younger men from the church and began their process throughout every room in the house. The longer they lasted, the louder a sound that seemed to be coming from the house's water pipes would increase. When they entered the master bedroom, the sound amplified immensely and one of the men hunched over and vomited all over the floor. After trying to push through, all three men left the property in haste, and John and Joyce were left to wonder what had just happened. One thing that they did agree on was that whatever it was, they both believed that it wasn't caused by little aliens, and now they were forced to look at their property as possibly being the stomping grounds of not just one supernatural entity, but possibly two or more. Shortly after the discovery of the gray aliens, John discovered that Joyce was having episodes of her levitating roughly three feet above the bed almost every night. Each time he would wake her up and she would drop down only to immediately go back to sleep with zero recollection of the events in the morning. Soon after, the episodes became more worrisome as John would witness Joyce being moved during her levitations from the bedroom into various parts of the house. Each time, he would place his hands on her shoulders and wake her out of her sleep, only for her to lower down and walk back to bed without ever remembering what had happened. This began to strain their marriage as Joyce was completely dumbfounded when John would try to and discuss the events. But one night, that would change. 
As John walked his wife as she was levitating down the hallway, he watched as she made a sharp turn towards the wall before passing directly through it. John raced around to the outside of the house where he witnessed her moving towards a whitish blue light that was coming from above. To John's amazement, a disc-shaped craft hung in the sky and the light, which he deduced was a tractor beam, was originating from the dead center of the bottom of the craft. John's response was to grab his AK-47 and shoot two full magazines at the point of the craft where the light was coming from. This caused the disc to eventually turn the light off and seemingly vanish. As Joyce came crashing down to the earth from about three or four feet, she awoke and this time she was very aware that she was not in the bed that she had fallen asleep in and John's stories of her levitating and hovering into random places within the house began to become more believable. High Strangeness Besides the events with the gray aliens, it became clear to John that there were multiple issues on hand on this property and some of these entities or events took place at random times. One particular event that he highlights in his book, Stardust Ranch, The Incredible True Story, described a trip that he embarked on to explore his land from within the comfort of his Jeep and the companionship of two of his Rottweilers. He eventually came across what he described as cleared out circle of land where nothing was growing that encompassed about 200 yards in diameter. Inside of this clearly defined circle, there was another circle that seemed to be outlined by something physical. John chose to get himself a better look and left the comfort of the air-conditioned vehicle and began the trek to the area. Upon his arrival, he was shocked to find that the circle was made completely up of neatly placed shoes, which also seemed to be organized by men's, women's, and children's with all of the toes pointed towards the middle of the circle. The size of the circle within a circle he estimated to be about 100 yards in diameter. John ran back to his Jeep and grabbed his camcorder out of his glove box in order to document his finding, and a few minutes into his investigation, he began to feel the literal hairs on his arm and back of his neck begin to stand up, which he described as if there was an electrified atmosphere all around him. He turned to his backside, only to be surprised by the presence of a large, black, triangular craft. The next thing he remembers is waking up with a severe sunburn on his arms and face. His dogs were panting from the heat, and the camcorder that he was using at the time was sitting in the dirt next to him, still recording. After watching the film, he discovered that he dropped the camera about 50 minutes prior to when he picked it back up. Unfortunately, there was no incredible evidence on the film, but he was able to discover that he was unconscious, lying on the desert floor for about 45 minutes in the severe desert heat. The ranch eventually began to unfold some of its secrets with one coming in the form of what John described as the Michelin Man. The first time that he had witnessed this being or creature, John was feeding his horses in the barn adjacent to the house. Out in the distance in the property next to his, he witnessed what he believed to be a rather large being walking along with a strange, almost lazy gait. Whatever it was, it was big and John decided not to pursue this particular creature as it was not on his property and he was beginning to get drained of the energy it took to investigate every single strange thing that happened on his land. But eventually the thing started showing up more often. It never did anything to make John feel directly threatened until one day when the creature appeared a little too close for comfort and was walking directly towards John's house. This is when John was able to get a good look at the thing. He described the creature as tall and bulky with a body shape that reminded him of the Michelin Man, hence the name, and a skin or fur that looked like a Brillo pad. Then in typical John fashion, he grabbed his AK-47 and fired multiple shots at the thing. 
The bullets seemed to do absolutely nothing to it, and the creature took an alarming amount of time and distance to turn away from its original heading. Sometime following the flap of incidents with the Michelin Man, John described having a particular run-in with the infamous Men in Black. He and a neighbor were having a beer in his backyard when an all-black sedan pulled up to the front of his ranch. Two men exited the vehicle and instead of waiting at the gate or climbing over or under, the men simply walked through the steel barrier. As John and his neighbor watched in awe, the men in black suits walked a hundred yards from the street to John's yard with one of the strange men stopping about six feet away from John and the other coming within a foot of his face. The extremely pale skinned man spoke to John with a direct statement stating, quote, you're John Edmonds and you're going to stop publishing articles on Peter Garston's cause website. This was in reference to the website that John had been posting articles and photos of the events on his property to share with the members of the organization known as CAUSE, CAUSE being an acronym for Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, which stood as an entity that pushed to have all documents regarding UFOs, alien beings, and the knowledge of such as well as the science associated with it made public and available to every person. The quote-unquote chicken-skin-skinned men turned away after the one's demand and walked back along the driveway again, through the gate, back into the car, and drove away. Although the next pair of events are not necessarily considered to be of the high strangeness flavor, it is important as it highlights some of the danger that John and Joyce were facing due to these incredible happenings. One afternoon, John was working in his shed when a bullet had flown through one of the buildings and out through the other. The projectile's path seemed to prove that it was fired from a nearby hill that overlooks the property, and the rapport that accompanied it left John believing that it had come from a sniper rifle. Immediately following this incident, the local sheriff's office came out to investigate, but no real answers or details came out of it. Shortly after, on a Friday night, John and Joyce were heading out to their truck to go out to dinner when a much faster rapport broke the silence of the night. John described the sound and frequency as coming from an AK-47, but both John and Joyce hid behind their truck until the sheriff's office arrived. But this time, the evidence was enough for them both to be questioned if they knew anyone who wanted to cause either of them harm. But unfortunately, this event again ended without any solid resolution. War. Throughout the long and incredible history of the events that occurred at Stardust Ranch with John Edmonds, there is one topic that has grasped the public and really cemented his strange place in the history of high strangeness. That, of course, being the physical conflicts between man and alien being. In his book, John apologizes for not knowing the exact date, but explains that through the two decades of interesting and bizarre events on the ranch, specific dates get lost. But it was his best guess that the incident that really began all the infamous stories began one night in 2007 when he was sitting in his living room watching TV. Through the years, John had gotten good at knowing when the greys were materializing near him, and this night was no different. The electrical feeling in the air made him feel aware that he was going to be visited that night. The weapon of choice this time was a sword that he refers to as a samurai sword that he had found after it fell off a pickup truck on the highway sometime in the past. Guns and baseball bats had failed to show the proper outcomes that he was hoping for when he encountered these beings, the preferred outcome being the death of these things, of course, so this time he would try sharpened steel, and it seemed to work. 
John cleverly surprised a group of three of the greys in his sunroom, and with one swipe he severed the head of one of them before the other two dematerialized out of existence. The attack left a brownish fluid puddled on the floor with two pieces of grey alien dramatically on top. John was very pleased at the outcome this time and almost immediately grabbed the head of the grey and the body and separately wrapped them in plastic before putting them in the chest freezer. When Joyce came home, she was upset to see the mess that was left in the sunroom, but quickly adjusted to a completely accepting demeanor after John presented her with the evidence that she was never expecting to see. Samples of the alien's blood and tissue were sent to Dr. Levengood in Michigan, who would eventually reach back out to John after tests were concluded with incredible and intriguing findings. The blood that was provided was like none on earth. It was saturated with a fibrous material and had a cellular structure similar to that of grass, but was not the exact same. Levengood would pass away by natural means shortly after and the whereabouts of the samples that he had in his possession have never been found. The findings were something that Levengood had a lot of difficulty with just knowing that they existed and was very hesitant with coming forward to the scientific community without more research and study done to make 100% certain that what he had in his possession was in fact not only filled with hemoglobin, the protein used in blood that disperses oxygen to different parts of the body, but it was structured in a way that was not found in any known living organism here on Earth. Brandy and the Syrians. Dr. Brandy Howe at the time was what she described as a quote, traditional naturopath and a life science practitioner with over 30 years of experience in the study of alternative slash integrative healing. As per her homepage on her practice's website, nightstarlifeawareness.com, fully qualified as a Reiki master, animal intuitive, light worker, electromagnetic practitioner, as well as a certified organic consultant who also studies, quote, herbology, pharmacology, nutrition, aromatherapy, iridology, homeopathy, polarity therapy, acupressure, kinesiology, reflexology, healing, vibrational therapies, animal communication, spiritual guidance, and bereavement assistance. And in mid-July of 2011, she reached out to John and stated that she had been hired by a third party, who would later be discovered to be a woman by the name of Cynthia Crawford, to come out to the ranch and lend her assistance against the great alien issue that John and Joyce had been plagued with. Initially weary of the New Age stuff, John was hesitant to allow her to come out to his property, but ultimately figured that he tried pretty much everything he could up to this point. Might as well let someone come out and try to assist in a way that he couldn't. It also helped that Brandy claimed to have been abducted throughout her life, which John saw as a helpful detail to her approach. So the date of July 31st, 2011 was chosen as the date for Brandy to come out and try her hand at the ranch's infestation of alien creatures. Brandy approached the ranch with two others who were armed with swords whom she described as being two warriors from the binary star system of Sirius that she referred to as J and J. She had claimed that the Syrians were considered to be the police of, quote, the Galactic Council and were essential to the day's mission. She would explain that there were five additional ships surrounding the property that were currently cloaked as clouds that could be called upon to assist in a moment's notice if need be. The first place that Brandy had visited inside the house was the old bedroom of a high school student who took his own life with a shotgun on the day of his graduation. She immediately began to pray as she mentioned that the boy was still here and was trapped with John and Joyce in their house. 
The very next thing that Brandy does is head to the living room and have the two Jays and John sit around the coffee table. She closed her eyes. She began to focus her energy to an unknown target to John until a globe of light appeared above the table and slowly grew to encompass the space above the table to the ceiling. From this light, three other beings dressed in armor and brandishing swords appeared and came through into John's living room. After the portal, the group headed outside, where Brandy wanted to talk with the horses to get their side of the story. She made John aware that, according to them, John and Joyce were not in any real danger due to the safety that is granted to humans from greater powers. Essentially, if the Greys were to hurt a human, the punishment would be far greater than their reward for doing so. In their minds, horses and dogs are lesser beings to humans and therefore will not warrant any punishment. So they kill the animals on John's ranch to send a message to him. The message being that this land is theirs and that the portals they use to enter our world is proof that they have been here a lot longer than any human. Brandy's work continued on the outside of the house and as she approached the gate at the end of John's long driveway, she mentioned that this is a hotspot for the Greys. She mentioned that she will use this area as a location for negotiations with the beings and sure enough, soon after she says this, a quote-unquote plethora of craft appeared in the sky to the south and one enormous ship came into view in the east. This one was enormous and was instantly recognizable as the mothership in this fleet of craft above John's property. Most of these flying craft were on the side of Brandy but three of the smaller ones belonged to the Greys. In these three ships, Brandy explained that there were approximately 20 beings in each that were a part of a completely rogue group of Greys, which did not hold the same standards as most of their species. This particular group was interested in the land because of the three portals, one of which had connections to the flow of time and could be used to visit the past and the future. Shortly after the armada of extraterrestrial ships appeared, Brandy and the two warriors of Sirius raised their swords in the air and touched tips, which formed the shape of a three-sided pyramid. Brandy began to speak in an unknown guttural language and a flash of purple lightning struck the ground just feet away from the trio. Brandy's job was over. Her and the two Jays walked off the fleet recloaked itself, the ships belonging to the Greys phased out of view, and Brandy told John that the problem that he had been having for 15 years at this point was to happen no more. Brandy would later follow up with a phone call to John and describe that what actually happened that day while she was communicating with the Greys was not to be talked about publicly. John never found out what exactly Brandy did, but Brandy had expressed that the experience had changed her the wrap-up. Later on, with continual contact with two of the beings that had come through the portal globe light in his living room, John would discover that one of them was an Andromedan and the other a Reptilian. He explains that a conversation that seems to have lasted for hours will actually only take a few minutes, as the beings have a power that controls the flow of time. Brandy clarifies bits and pieces of information about the two warriors from Sirius. She would eventually explain to John that the physical bodies of the men he saw were not from Sirius. Rather, the essence of Syrian warriors would take over the physical bodies of beings and places in the universe that they need to be in order to complete a task. The process was what she called a quote-unquote walk-in, and needed to be done with a soul that agreed to the terms of a reincarnation prior to the exchange. 
the presence of the Greys never completely went away. They were always there, but with a much more subtle presence since Brandy's assistance that day. All in all, John believes that he has personally killed somewhere around 18 individual gray aliens on his property. There are many websites and articles dedicated to the stories of Stardust Ranch through the internet. Many outline events that were not mentioned in his book Stardust Ranch, The Incredible True Story, such as John's wife Joyce being abducted and raped multiple times during their time at the ranch, or that a research team has documentation of a gray they encountered but are unwilling to release it. But one thing that does seem to be true is that Robert Bigelow, once owner of the famed Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, has made multiple attempts to purchase the property for far less than John's asking price. John Edmonds unfortunately passed away in February 2022, and shortly before his death, the property did sell for $5 million. The stories that John has shared with the world are incredible additions to the fans of the unknown and a buffet of goodies to all who study Fordian topics. So I will just have to sit back and wait for the new owners to continue the legacy of this unforgettable piece of land just outside of Buckeye, Arizona, in an area known as Rainbow Valley, the home of the Stardust Ranch. Well, that's it, everybody. That's my... uh my coverage of John Edmonds and his property that he renamed to Stardust Ranch shortly after all of this began. Uh, what do you guys think? That's a, I mean, it's a pretty crazy story. There is a ton to unpack. I know no shit, like really had to reread this book. I just had to make sure that I got everything. And yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. So I'm going to just leave it to you guys. What do you guys think? Let us know. Hit us up on our Facebook page, our X, our Instagram. Shoot, send us a TikTok. I don't care. Email infiniterabbithole at gmail.com. Go to our website, infiniterabbithole.com. Click on the Contact Us button. Leave us a message. Send us a voicemail. Let us know. What do you guys think of Stardust Ranch? And do you believe John's story? Well, that's it for today, everybody. Next time... On the Infinite Rabbit Hole, we will be diving into the Colacanth, and Jake will be taking the reins with his second installment in a series in which he tells success stories of animals that were once considered a cryptid. That is it, travelers. I'll see you next time in the next fork in the path of the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Goodbye. I would like to thank you once again for tuning in to the Infinite Rabbit Hole Podcast. Please make sure to give us a follow and one of those beautiful five-star ratings on your podcast player of choice. If you would like to join the conversation and stay up to date on all things Infinite Rabbit Hole, head on over to Facebook and search for the Infinite Rabbit Hole Facebook group. You'll know it's us when you see the logo. If you would like to help contribute to the cause, there are a few ways to do so. First head on over to anchor.fm forward slash infinite rabbit hole and click on the subscribe button where for $5 a month you'll get access to all our old episodes that will never see the free spotlight ever again. It's horrible stuff. But if you're into that kind of thing, then go check it out. Second, head on over to infiniterabbithole.com and click on the IRH merch shop tab and grab yourself a sweet t-shirt, sticker, or whatever else you see that you wouldn't mind owning. 
Until next time, travelers, I'm Jeremy, and I'll see you at the next fork in the path of the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Bye. Captain, this line represents the time. Present 19.